I'm honored to have the chance to speak with you, the Unitarian Universalists of Los Alamos. I've served your sister Manhattan Project congregation in Oak Ridge, Tennessee for 18 years now. In that time, I've talked about a lot of local concerns from race relations to democracy to loving our neighbors and so forth, but I've only very rarely talked about a moral issue right in the center of the story of our city, nuclear weapons. I don't know about Los Alamos, but in Oak Ridge, it's the kind of thing you just don't talk about. There's a lot we don't talk about in Oak Ridge. Our name is the Secret City, and many church members have Q clearance, so they're accustomed to keeping quiet about a lot of things. And even though the Y-12 nuclear plant, which produces and stores weapons-grade uranium and dismantles and refurbishes nuclear weapons, is the largest employer in town, followed by the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, what is there to say? Talking about it only seems to uh, stir up trouble. Every August 6th, protesters gather outside of Y-12, bearing witness to the memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Growing up Unitarian Universalist in uh, nearby Knoxville, I grew up knowing a lot of the protesters that would gather there on that day. Some of my own Sunday school teachers from the Knoxville church would get arrested as a rite of passage. But moving to Oak Ridge 18 years ago, I learned that people inside the city tended to relate to the August protests in a different way. There was a pressured silence about it. You could drive by and see hundreds of people outside the plant, but no one in town would mention it. In a way that people growing up in families learn what's not to be talked about, I learned not to talk about nuclear weapons. In my first decade with the church, the only two times church people raised their voices at me was when I wondered why we didn't talk about it. Apparently, even wondering about that was dangerous, and I can understand why. There is a lot of pride in Oak Ridge about the Manhattan Project, the way the community formed together and pulled together in pursuit of a mission that ended a terrible war, the cutting-edge science that propelled the world into a new age, the way people kept their mouths shut and were able to be part of something so big and important. And later, the pride uh, that nuclear strength meant that the United States won the Cold War against the Soviet Union. There's pride, of course, about the supercomputers at the National Lab and pride about other things that have happened in Oak Ridge. But pride about the Manhattan Project is that kind of pride of someone with a chip on their shoulder, the pride of somebody who's ready to fight. And I've come to understand that instinct. There's the sense of being misunderstood and of misrepresented, of being called inhumane and monstrous for the deaths in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when a lot of people in Oak Ridge want to respond that it was a terrible war, World War II, and that many more would have died, both Americans and Japanese alike, had the United States been pressured to make a land invasion to end the war. People at Oak Ridge can be pre preemptively defensive about Monday morning quarterbacks questioning something that happened years ago now to win that war. And yet that tendency to defend the legacy and the founding purpose of Oak Ridge can also lead people getting themselves stuck in indefensible moral positions, as if might makes right was how we wanted the world to work. There are dehumanizing things said about Japanese people when the old fight kicks up, and it never seems to go anywhere. So, one might conclude maybe it is better not to talk about it after all. But the silence sits heavy on me. 
not because I want to pick one side of a polarized fight, but because as a Unitarian Universalist, I believe in engaging the hard stuff and working through some hard questions to find a principled view in conversation with others. Because if nothing else, there's an important conversation in Oak Ridge that seems to either result in explosion or else silence, and I think we can come up with better questions and some new views. I think that it's something we can talk about. I'll tell you, it took me a while to get to this point. I arrived in Oak Ridge in 2003 as a pacifist and a vegan, clear in my outlook and skeptical of anyone with moderating words about weaponry or war. But then it was the time of Iraq and Afghanistan, and because our congregation was on the main road through town, young people started to show up, veterans wanting to make sense of their experience, and I learned to listen to their sense of service, to their fatalism, to the idealism that they still had inside, and how often they had been misused by leaders and politicians they trusted to make decisions in their best interests. They were searching for meaning, trying to figure out what it was all about, trying to make sense of their experience. These conversations led me into a few years of serving in the Army Reserve myself as a chaplain, where I had the chance to talk with many other soldiers making sense of their lives and their experience. By then, I was no longer the starry-eyed and occasionally judgmental idealist I had been before. I thought it was important to care for people who had sacrificed in my name, even when I was sure that Iraq, at least, was an utter mistake for our country begun with a lie. How to honor the soldier and the service without endorsing jingoism and half-truths. How to bury the young soldier several times with honor and care. That was the work of my military chaplaincy. So I come to the question of nuclear weapons and specifically the legacy of Hiroshima, humbled from my previous confidence and always eager to listen to hear what I am missing. You can be sure I've listened to countless people over the years in Oak Ridge as they work out their own views, often in terms of how they've spent their lives. And I'll tell you, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts uh, from Los Alamos if you want to email me after listening to this sermon at revjakebmoral at gmail.com. But I wanted to share with you one perspective uh, that I was in conversation with. One of the people who is most memorable to me for my early years at the church was Alvin Weinberg. I only knew him for three years before his death in 2006, but I came to admire his quiet, questioning, alert presence. He would call to arrange for us to go out to lunch and then always find a way to tack on four or five errands to the bank, to the dry cleaners, the library, to drop off a book. I'd wait in the car, pondering the value of my expensive divinity school degree as he did all of this. But soon enough, we'd end up at a local restaurant called the Soup Kitchen, where he'd want to drill me on such light topics as Immanuel Kant and what I happen to know about the work of J.S. Bach. No small talk for Alvin Weinberg. Alvin came to the Oak Ridge uh, during the war as a theoretical physicist, and afterwards he became director of research at the lab and then director of the lab itself. Uh, He worked with the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Nixon administration in public policy roles and then was the director of the Office of Energy Research and Development in Washington, etc., etc. That's the kind of person uh, Alvin was, well-respected in the nuclear science community. And yet he struggled with the moral implications of having unleashed such power. 
1971, he described nuclear power as a Faustian bargain for providing humankind with such incredible energy source, while, on the other hand, requiring a vigilance and a care that humanity hadn't demonstrated itself capable of throughout history. Even back during the war, Alvin had signed a letter along with other Manhattan Project scientists, written by Leo Sillard, uh, warning of the danger of using a nuclear weapon and asking the government to only use it for test purposes as a demonstration which would quell the enemy. That said, afterward, he didn't publicly question the use of the nuclear weapon in Hiroshima, saying he accepted the simple argument that, on the whole, it had saved lives since it had prevented the need for a land invasion. It was in the mid-1980s, when people were marking the 40th anniversary of Hiroshima, that Alvin developed another way to address Hiroshima in moral terms. He proposed a concept that he called the sanctification of Hiroshima. In this view, the horror of Hiroshima was not denied or minimized, as so, can, so often can happen, but was regarded directly as the source of its meaning. Alvin pointed out that after World War II, Jewish congregations had incorporated Yom HaShoah, an annual ritual of remembrance to make sure that the horror of the Holocaust would never be forgotten. In similar terms, he proposed that religious communities take up the project of annually remembering Hiroshima, including its horror. Remember, his stance was not that it should not have happened. He was agnostic at most. What he was addressing was how humanity now should relate to this historic event. I've thought about his proposal of the sanctification of Hiroshima for a while, appreciating it as an attempt to think religiously about nuclear weapons. And yet, something nagged at me about it. So let's talk about sanctification. It's a theological term from the Christian tradition describing how God redeems that which is otherwise saturated in sin. It's not an act of human will, sanctification, but of the holy. In that light, there's resonance with the classic universalist notion of God as that all-conquering force of love which leaves nothing to rot, nothing to waste, which redeems everything. An early universalist, Origen, claimed that in the end even Satan would be overcome by God's mercy. Or as people say it these days, in the end love wins. So sanctification is about how, against all the odds, even in the face of the greatest horror, love wins. A bold proclamation. Surely, Alvin Weinberg's proposal is aligned with his spirit. There is no erasing history nor reversing the loss of so many in Hiroshima, but there is a way to put what happened to good purpose for the protection and preservation of generations to come as an event that will now stand outside history and serve ritual purpose. It's a noble intent. But thinking about it, I figured out what bothers me about it. In Jewish congregations, Yom HaShoah remembers Jewish people who were lost in the Holocaust. It is a ritual, uh, then, by those who suffered to transform the event toward a purpose in the current day. There's a different context, though, in the idea that American congregations would remember Hiroshima and the loss of so many who are far away. Thinking through the lens of uh, colonialism, it's a familiar trope for people of privilege and comfort to use the suffering of those on the margins for their own peace and ease. Throughout uh, World War II and even today, there's a steady pulse of anti-Asian propaganda that seeks to dehumanize Asian people and to minimize their suffering. 
I honor Alvin's proposal for the sanctification of Hiroshima. Rituals of remembrance provide an architecture of meaning. To evoke suffering is to, in the same breath, pledge oneself to preventing further suffering. But relating to suffering can't be done honorably from a far distance. For Americans considering relating to Hiroshima in this way, before we can appropriate the suffering of the Japanese, we must first encounter the horror firsthand. For the ritual to be rooted in compassion and sorrow, we must first open our hearts to allow knowledge of the devastation to inform our souls. Last fall, a mentor of mine, a retired UU minister named Carl Bretz, passed away. As a 19-year-old army corporal, he had been deployed to Nagasaki two weeks after the bombing there. Until the day he died, he remembered not only the sights, but the smells of what he experienced in Nagasaki. His eyes would tear up to recall it. It is this humility and tender-heartedness, I believe, that we first must enter into before we can engage authentically in remembrance. We must learn the stories and the names. We must understand what was so precious that was lost. How different is this from the high-heat political rhetoric that flies back and forth arguing political and military strategy about that event? And if this is true about relating to Hiroshima, it is also true of other suffering in the world, even in our current day. The suffering of those in the desert on the border, the suffering of those worried about their black and brown children in a world where police perform extrajudicial killings, the suffering of those who've been silenced from abuse. It's the end now of the pandemic or getting close to it, and difficult times may lie ahead for all we know. We may seek comfort these days and reassurance, but as people of faith seeking to rehumanize the world in a dehumanizing age, let us be those who allow our own weary hearts to stay open, to recognize and realize the suffering in others and in ourselves as well. It is from that humble and sometimes broken-hearted stance that we can be then about beginning the repair of this world.